0: Welcome to episode number seven of the Science of Hitting podcast. Uh, In the first six episodes, I've been lucky to have two great guests already, Francisco Oliveira and Andrew Walker. Uh, Today, I have another great guest, my buddy, Bill Brewster. For those of you who don't know Bill, he's part of the trio from the Value After Hours podcast with Toby Carlisle and Jake Taylor. And I'd also like to note that Bill recently played a big part in starting an important conversation about changes that need to be made at Robin Hood, uh, their website and their app. And I just wanted to publicly commend Bill for his efforts on that front, because I think it took, you know, it took a lot of time and effort. And I think what he pushed for is incredibly important and will have a real impact on people's lives. So with that, thanks for joining me, Bill. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. I I hope
1: to live up to the, uh, you know, the reputation that the two preceding guests have have uh, given this podcast, not to mention your writing, and uh, your recaps. This is a fair amount of pressure for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were both pretty good, but I, I think you'll do all right. We'll see. <laughs> well, let's
1: set the bar low for the remaining guests. <laughs>
0: there you go. Um, all right. Well, let's start with uh, Berkshire. They released their 13F on Friday, and I think the most noteworthy changes were uh, that Buffett sold a few billion dollars of JPM and Wells. On the other hand, he's been aggressively buying Bank of America. He had an more than $2 billion in the last few weeks. So I have two questions for you. First, how do you feel about Buffett's recent activity, most notably his large sales of Wells, which he's owned for more than 30 years while he continues to buy BAC? And then second, how do you think about activity in your own portfolio when you see somebody that you greatly respect, like Buffett, selling a stock that you own or have been buying?
1: Uh, So this is a complicated question. Um, As with everything Buffett, I think that Uh, it's important to understand what he's saying within the context of um, the vehicle that he's running everything in. So he has said in the past, unless I'm horribly mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that if he were smaller, he would turn over capital more often or, or, you know, his stock picks more often. Uh, And, you know, I think it's important for us Buffett watchers not to sort of uh, impose Berkshire's restrictions on our own investment process, right? I think it's more important to sort of get the the principles of what he's saying rather than following the actions at this stage of his career. Um, as it pertains to Bank of America and Wells and J.P. Morgan, my general sense is that he... Um, has been really let down by Wells over the, the last few years. And um, I, you know, I mean, I know that he's not a emotional investor, but I do think it's pretty difficult to have put so much of your reputation on the line for so long backing a company and to be so let down um, by that company. It's hard for me to think that it hasn't somewhat tainted his feeling of Wells, because uh, he is human. And I would also add that um, coming out of 09, I think one of the things that he really liked about Wells was its ability to aggressively lend coming out of the cycle. And it's pretty hard to argue that Wells is in the same um, you know, competitive position coming out of this cycle if this cycle ends quickly. Uh, as it was in '09, you know, I think that there's also a reasonable possibility that no one's talking about that Wells actually fixes itself before, you know, the lending sort of starts coming out of the cycle. But who knows? I mean, the next 18 months or so, or the the range of outcomes appears pretty wide.
0: Yeah, yeah not within Wells, that. but
1: within the economy, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think his well, whole... Maybe with uh,
1: Wells, too, to be fair.
0: Yeah. No, I think his whole experience with banks lately has been... it's a, It's been a good lesson in what might happen if you just follow people religiously. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he said Wells in '09. He famously said that if he had to own one stock today when he was asked by someone, he said it'd be Wells. Um, a few years ago, maybe in 2019, he said basically that banks were extremely cheap and obviously they're down pretty significantly from where they were at when he said that. And his activity, not just in Wells and JPM as well, and obviously he's going a different way on BAC right now, which I don't totally understand. But yeah, it's a a good lesson for if you're following someone. Banks have been really hard for me because part of the bet has been uh, a reflection of the fact that I think the deposit bases will be very sticky. And I still believe that the harder part is taking that to the bottom line, especially with interest rates. And for someone like, well, specifically, you know, when the issues run as deep as we both know that they do now, even if sharp ends up being the right person, we'll see how many years it takes to fix it. If it's fixable. So
1: yeah I think that's right i I think so if you assume for a loan book or assume for a second that that the big four loan books are roughly the same credit quality um which there's gonna be nuance there, and that you know certain banks dominate certain niches but um I think that if somebody you know if somebody said to me, well, wells can't grow assets right now, and if you look at what Bank of America has been doing to its deposit base over the period since wells pretty much had the handcuffs on it and i mean jp morgan too has been doing really well certainly relative to wells um you know there's an argument to be made that coming out of this there's a real relative scale advantage that bank of america has at least Mm -hmm. on a funding cost side um and i think that's probably an accurate conclusion if people are drawing that and i think that market share in banking is pretty difficult i mean one of the things that wells has suffered from right now uh is they haven't been able to step up for a lot of their customers and you know that that interview of jamie diamond that surfaced when was that like two weeks ago or so what was that mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean jamie was saying about how You know, he wanted to lend more to the energy sector, but regulators have handcuffed him. And like he he views it as his duty to take that kind of risk right now. I mean, I don't I don't think that's just like CEO speak. I think he really thinks that. And I mean, I, I used to work at BMO Harris Bank. I know that the people over there, like for the for the customers that warrant it. Right. I mean, there are certain customers that don't deserve additional exposure, but they want to put that money out there. And if you're Wells and you've led a deal and now all of a sudden your you know, your customers need more loans and you can't grow your assets, are you calling up Bank of America or some other bank to bring them into the deal? It's probably not Bank of America. You're probably calling someone smaller, but, you know, you're letting the fox into the hen house. And uh, I don't I mean that I, I think it's impossible to argue that Wells Fargo's franchise value has not been eroded over the last three years. I guess the thing that I find somewhat, um, I guess, interesting is probably the best word to use since none of us, uh, you know, have perfect foresight. But um, there are some really big investors that I respect that are capitulating on Wells. And there are other people, you know, that are pinging me now that I've been public about liking it, uh, which I somewhat regret being public. But um, I think on balance, <laughs> it was a good thing. Um <laughs> You know, like people are saying, well, I don't know that I want to hold it now. And part of me thinks like, you know, so one refrain that I've heard is I'd rather own Bank of America right now. It's a great bank and Wells isn't. Well, you know, 10 years ago, Wells was the darling and Bank of America wasn't. And four years ago, people didn't think Wells had these problems. Now, right. I'm not saying Bank of America does. I, I think it's a really low probability that they do. But it's just sort of interesting that now that the scabs are out in the open and they're actually being addressed, everybody's capitulating or a lot of people that I respect are capitulating. And when they were fully covered up, everybody could tell themselves a good story and they were willing to believe that it's cheap. Now that I think it's actually objectively cheap, nobody wants to touch it, which is probably why it's cheap.
0: Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of interesting things there for one, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, especially in the extreme, you know, if you own something for 30 years, like, like Buffett has here, I'd be curious to see what he says about, you know, what was the, the event that really led to the final decision? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? And it's probably a culmination of a bunch of stuff, but I think it'd be interesting you know, I guess Russo wrote in in detail about it. So maybe I should go back and reread what he said. Maybe he, he explained it well, but It is interesting to think about. Um,
1: I mean, the thing that...
0: No, don't be sorry. I I
1: didn't mean to cut you off, but you mentioned Russo. I mean, if I added a line to Tom, uh, Mr. Russo, I should call him. I don't deserve to call him Tom. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if I had a line to him... Yeah, I would. I'd say Mr. Russo. He's the man. Um, But (laughs) what I find interesting about his philosophy is it's the capacity to suffer and reinvestment uh, opportunities. And... While I don't think Wells has a ton of uh, potential to invest in growth right now, I see massive, massive areas for improvement for investment for long-term gain below the revenue line item. And it's odd to me that uh, he said, I, I, you know, I'll sell now. I, I highly doubt he'll buy back in. Um, if he does, yeah. that would really surprise me. Um, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting setup and uh, certainly one that's unloved.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I've owned it for a long time, and we'll see what happens going forward. <laughs> um, well,
1: I mean, you know, I, I owned it before, too. I just, in February, realized that holding uh, a credit book was not the risk that I, I thought I should hold, given what I um, suspected was coming with COVID, which
0: proved reasonably correct. Yeah, that was that was pretty smart. Uh, we'll see if getting back in was smart as well.
1: Yeah, it's bound to not be. Uh, and, <laughs> and then everyone will call me an idiot as if I don't know the risks.
0: Right, right. Well, that's the way it works when you're public <laughs> sometimes. So uh, let's that's talk right. about something. We'll talk about something a little more fun, which is you bought Microsoft in March. Um, it's a funny side note real quick. When I was doing the prep work for this, I wanted to see how cheap Microsoft got when you bought it. And I was assuming it, I thought it bottomed at like 180 or something. When I looked, I saw that it actually fell below 140 40 bucks a share, which is kind of funny considering it's my largest position. You would think I would actually have some idea where I traded that in March. Um, so I don't know if that's a good thing, but on the other hand, it's, it's probably telling that as an investor, I am able to not really care about the short-term moves in the company, which definitely isn't true for some other stuff in my portfolio. So maybe that's a good sign of uh, what I, what I should and shouldn't be owning. But anyways, um, Here's my question for you. You know, Microsoft's obviously a, a well-known company that's very highly regarded. It's got good business, large addressable markets, great management, strong balance sheet, etc. However, I think most people would say that's it's priced in to a certain extent on traditional valuation metrics. And in my mind, buying into a situation like this, where the business has done really well, but the company's definitely become more uh, expensive on those metrics, can be difficult to do. So I was just curious what got you over the hurdle of being willing to pay up for what's already a large business that may have a tough time growing into that multiple in the years to come. So, uh
1: you and I have talked about in the past Greenblatt's theory of if you run a 70/30 portfolio, you should probably never go more than 60/40 one way and 80/20 the other, right? So so I'm talking mm-hmm. stock and bond allocation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, my running theory into, um, this really into March, right. Um, and, and late February, but this year, generally speaking was that I was afraid of taking a lot of the interest rate risk that was, uh, well, I should say my perception of the interest rate risk that was, uh, appeared embedded to me in a lot of these multiples, So I had sold Wells on February, I think it was the 20th. It might've been the 25th. It was probably the 25th. Um, yeah, that looks a little bit better. I'm just looking at the chart. I don't, (laughs) I don't want to like lie to people on this, but anyway, in late February. Right. Um, and I did that because I was lucky enough to receive a transcript, um, from somebody that I know. Well, I don't know if he wants to be called out, so I'm not going to say his name. Um, but it was a speech about like what COVID nineteen could be, and it really freaked me out. And uh, you know, I, I thought that really any asset-heavy name had a problem, and I thought that credit had a big problem. So I was long, like real long, uh, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and the airlines. Right. So I was mostly at, well. I was out of Wells Fargo by late February, and I was out of most of that stuff. I was fully out of the airlines by March 12th. Um, So uh, ironically, that's like the same day that I bought Microsoft. But uh, if you look at what happened with Wells, so Wells in February 25th was at $45. And by March 12th, it was at 27. And my entire uh, sort of like problem with microsoft was i thought that when there was a sell-off the valuation would sort of bleed harder than the cheap stuff because of the sort of the near-term cash flows and the cheap stuff uh in what i what i thought would be like a normal recession would protect the downside a little bit more than microsoft uh because i just thought that some of the growth might um you know people might get some of the growth assumptions hammered out of them uh what I realized by the 12th was the certainty of cash flow would be really desired by the market. And Microsoft mm-hmm. was trading like pretty strong relative to other assets. Um, and I sort of, I, I mean, at some point you have to look at yourself and you got to say, am I going to get out of beta right now? And if it, like my answer was no, because I subscribed to the green theory. And then my question was, okay, well, if Microsoft is trading stronger than the things that I thought were cheaper uh what's the probability that I'm wrong versus the market, given that I think that the market is going to really really weight the certainty of cash flow higher and uh I just sort of sat and thought a little bit about that, and you know i don't I think I can write my next like Whitney Tilson advertisement on that buy, but that was not the intent it was uh it. <laughs> It, it was really to run to, I mean, not run to safety, it was thought out, right? But I uh, i just, I, I was tweeting about how I thought that, like, some of the
0: quality assets were going to explode out of that period. And I think that proved pretty pressing. Let me ask you something, because you and I, we talk daily, and I don't, you know, obviously it's been a little while, but I don't particularly remember you being too shaken up or anything like that at that time when you were letting go of the banks and really the airlines, which you had been pretty public on and, you know, pretty close up to when you started selling, you changed your mind in probably a two week period or so based on new information, which I've commended you for publicly and you should be commended for because it was the right thing to do. But was that a difficult decision? I don't remember you being too, too worried about it, at least with me, but maybe I've forgotten.
1: Uh, I look, I think that anytime like that, uh that you're public about a position or I'll just personalize it, that I'm public about a position that's like, obviously stupid. Like I am with Wells Fargo right now. Uh, You know, it sucks to admit defeat on that um, because like I had put a lot of my own reputational capital into that idea. But uh, I mean, I knew that airlines could not fly around the country without people in them. And I also did a liquidity analysis on them, you know, in late February. And I was like, these guys aren't going to make it for very long, especially if the debt markets close up on them. And, you know, I lobbed in a couple calls to some people that I think are really sharp that I, that I know covered the industry. And I had asked liquidity questions and I got balance sheet issue answers. And I knew that the, strength of the balance sheet was not going to save them in this particular instance. Uh, I was fully prepared to hold them through a drawdown through a negative, you know, like a normal recession. If, if everybody was selling the stocks, cause they were afraid I would have been a buyer, but I mean, all you had to do was know the business, especially the hubs. I mean, the hubs are so predicated upon efficiency uh, to work as well as they do that I just, I mean, it wasn't that hard to sell. It just had to get over, you know, the idea of feeling like an idiot. But I try to be self-deprecating as
0: much as possible, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no, that, but that makes sense. So it was. To, I mean, given what you were reading and what you knew, it just it just became apparent that this was going to be a real disaster. It wasn't a small, wasn't a small blip, basically.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that is honestly why I'm self-deprecating. Like I, I don't want to tell myself that I'm very smart very often. I don't think that that's a healthy habit. I, you know, you got to have some self-confidence, but um, I mean, you know, sometimes you're wrong. And the other thing, I mean, you and I talk about it a lot, like you underwrite a set of probabilities. And unfortunately the left tail, like the true left tail came out on that bet. And I'd still make the bet again, going back. I mean, I, I still like that thesis. I'm not there now because I'm just unsure of what the competitive position is going to look like on the back end of this and whether or not they're going to be a lot smaller entities servicing more debt. Um, That makes me nervous. And, you know, a value guy would say, well, that's why you should buy it, but I'm not there right now.
0: Right. I think that makes sense. Um, Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you've been kind of continuing with this, with this, train of thought, you know, you've been public with a lot of ideas and the airlines is want to turn out very well. And alongside you've, you've been public. did not turn out
1: well. It did not turn out well, sir. It just... The
0: decision turned out well, you're, you're, you changing your mind. <laughs> yes. I think it's, I think it's pretty easy in hindsight to say that it was a good idea or, you know, you could say like, Oh, I would have done that if it was me. But I think when you did it and how you did it, which by which I mean, you had a, a material percentage, of your portfolio and the idea, um, I think that's very difficult to do, especially when you're public on something. So I definitely think it was a very good idea or a good decision. Yeah,
1: and I mean, Buffett had bought Delta on like the 12th or the 10th or something in March. And, you know, it's like, well, does he know something? I don't. But uh, the nice thing about where I'm at in my career is I don't need
0: him to, you know, sort of bless an idea. Right. All right. So now that I've heaped some praise on you and you just did a little bit yourself – uh, <laughs> I sure. want to talk about I want to talk about one of your ideas that it has not worked out so well. Hey, now um, you pitched ABI in early twenty nineteen at uh. the Ideas Conference, and stocks down a pretty decent amount since then. Market's obviously up a decent amount. You just talk about you know kind of the pitch, what happened subsequently, and what you learned from the investment, and and as importantly, what you learned from pitching it publicly. I think that may have been the first thing that you really pitched very publicly, right?
1: Yeah. It was uh, my beloved
0: 3G. Um, I'm right there with you, by the way. I'm crap pines for anybody who doesn't know. I've kind of stopped talking about it for some of the reasons you're about to find out. But go ahead.
1: I, you know, look, I, I think that. Um, I think there's a confluence of issues going on there that I underappreciated. And I don't know how many are real as far as the narrative game goes, but certainly some are. So if you look at, I guess my general theory was they have a legacy distribution advantage. They know how to press it. You look at their margins and these guys are good operators, like as far as efficiency goes. Um, South America has been horrible for them for the last couple of years. And I had thought that uh, that was sort of, you know, overlo- I, I sort of dismissed what a problem that was because I said over the long term that should work itself out. Um, and, you know, I don't know. If coronavirus didn't come around, I don't know if I'd still be in it or not. But um, the other thing is I think that I understood what it meant to have so much debt in US dollars and have your revenues in foreign currency. But then I saw the FX headwind that just continued and continued and continued. And on top of that, I think I probably underappreciated what that did to their cost of goods sold. And um, then, you know, the sort of cherry on top of misses was i said to myself that uh you know they would roll up the the craft brewers and sort of like stick them in their distribution channel and if i was really 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 honest with myself i mean all the craft brewers that they have bought have sort of gone to shit um and i probably should have paid more attention to how they completely destroyed the goose island um that bourbon county brand that they had they just Mm -hmm. way overproduced it and it's not what it once was and you know i dismiss the knock that they don't know how to how to really handle a brand um and i think that the reason that i did it was if you look at what they've done with corona and budweiser um you know those those have been really good brands um And Stella, they've crushed it on Stella and Michelob Ultra. So it's not like these guys are morons. I just think that when you get to that size, uh, you can't make the next big acquisition, and it becomes like a real sort of brand cultivation game. And I'm not sure they're great at that. Well, I don't think they are.
0: Yeah. So I mean, just hearing you say it, even it's you know, it's kind of funny how. You can get sucked into these ideas where it's so obvious that a trend like craft beer, you know, is clearly working against them to a certain extent. And the idea that they're going to be successful by rolling up brands, as, as you said, it hasn't really panned out. And even if it ever had, I don't know how big it could have been. You know, I, I relate it back to another 3G investment, Craft Times, which I, I can remember. It was years ago now, but I remember seeing one time their, their mix of sales by category. And I realized it then that they were competing in a lot of categories, like cheese and lunch meats, where their brands were not that strong, and they were going to have problems. And something like condiments, where I thought they actually did have an advantage that would be sustainable, it was just so small relative to the enterprise that it didn't matter. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, how yeah, you can stuff like that sometimes, and you let yourself kind of brush it aside. But it's a, it's pretty telling. And, probably shouldn't let that happen going forward. I hope I don't let it happen to myself again, but I I did that time. And I guess I still do. Well,
1: a listener would turn around and be like, then why the hell are you buying Wells Fargo? Uh, Sure. Which would be a a reasonable uh, sort of like knock, right? Um, Yeah, it is. I, I think the other thing with, with the craft or, you know, 3G portfolio is if you want to find Evidence that they're not bad at brands, you could look at something like Philadelphia and you could look at um you know like i mean why can't why am I blanking Heinz on the ketchup I mean that's like right. the most delicious ketchup ever made, and they <laughs> haven't they haven't done anything bad with that brand you know no, I, that, brand,
0: that brand's actually done halfway the results have actually been pretty decent right. So, you know,
1: and within, uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk over you.
0: What's up? No, you're fine. Go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say like, and within AB InBev, right. I mean, what they have done with Budweiser, Corona Worldwide, Stella and Michelob Ultra is really good. Like they're not these, you know, Dumas's that don't know how to handle assets. <laughs> um, But, you know, like, think it's probably too big and it's probably gotten to the point where at at that maturity level it's hard to swim against a tide that's, you know, shrinking on you 3 4% a year. Um right. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's what's going on there. And the other thing is they push that working capital so hard
0: that uh, you know, maybe that's starting to backfire on them a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I- Even just zooming out a bit, I think it's interesting that these ideas, you know, kind of pop on the radar. And you can see, you know, to your point a minute or earlier about Buffett operating with a smaller amount of capital, what he would be doing. I'm just curious to be looking at ideas like this. And to the extent that someone like you or I are looking at those ideas, I wonder how much of it's just a reflection of the fact that the opportunity set in areas that are clearly better businesses on criteria like growth. And long-term prospects. I wonder how much of it's just a reflection of the fact that a lot of those things look very expensive. So you're kind of you're kind of forced down a road that you may not really want to go down. But I don't know. I'm not thinking no, out loud.
1: I, no, I think that there's I mean, I think that there is certainly for me, uh, there's reality in that statement. Uh, you know, I was talking to I mean, I just jumped into the conversation today. I wasn't talking right on Twitter, but about Peloton. And I mean, I get that asset and I get what they're going to do with it. And I am with a pretty high degree of confidence can tell you that the instructors don't matter at all. I mean, those people are nice to look at and have good personalities for now, but you plug them in with some other Instagram influencer. It's not going to matter as long as they can ride a bike and give you a good mm. workout. So I think the value is in the platform itself and not the personalities. That said, mm. man, you got to be precise on the growth if you're going to pay today's valuation. And it does feel nichey, uh, You know, and you're paying a lot for, you know, not a lot that's here today. So um, I understand that if you're not discounting that at a high rate, you can do it, but um There's a lot of execution risk and consumer behavior risk in something like that in the interim. So I do think I probably got pushed into looking at something like bud. And I don't know. The other thing is, you know, it it also matters how they're going to give you back the capital. I mean, you know, you look at, Something like curate that I praised Maffei for uh, the other day. I mean, that's that's like what you want. You know, for those that don't know, it's QVC and uh, Home Shopping Network and the smaller assets like Zulily and whatnot. But QVC and Home Shopping Network are the really the key assets, and they're returning cash to shareholders. And Maffei acknowledged on the call, like we realize that the market is telling us that this is a little bit of an asset and runoff, and we realize that people don't trust it. We disagree, but because of that, we're going to give you cash back today. You know, a lot of management teams would execute a buyback there or something. And right. You know, like AB in was not going to give you your back, your money back in a dividend. They were probably going to lever up and go try to do another acquisition. So it was, it was a mistake to not listen to our man, Francisco on that one.
0: (laughs) Fair point. Um, Okay, well, then we'll look at one that Francisco probably did help on. Uh, As I mentioned at the start, I recorded a pod with Andrew Walker, and we talked a lot about Comcast and Charter. And towards the end of that, I asked him uh, why he prefers Charter over Comcast, and I thought he made some very compelling points. Um, I should note that I own Comcast, but not Charter. Um, Anyway, so I've been thinking about that discussion a lot, and I I know you listened to it as well. So here's my question for you someone who owns Charter and Comcast, what was your takeaway in terms of the logic of simultaneously holding both of those entities in your portfolio? And do you think it makes sense to own a diversified conglomerate like Comcast for the long run? Or would you be better off just owning, you know, well-run peer plays? In this case, probably, you know, something like Charter and Disney. Um,
1: My beef with Comcast is I have no idea what they're doing with Sky. And that's because I don't know what the heck Sky offers. Uh, And that's not like their mistake as much as it probably is mine as an investor. Um, So Charter is much easier for me to get my head around now. And I think that, you know, I, I liked... I don't see how you can look back at the NBCU acquisition and say like, boy, that was a stupid move. But, you know, with hindsight, looking back, I agree with Andrew who said, you know, they should have just bought in their shares and doubled down on broadband. I don't know if at the time that was as easy to predict as it was. And, you know, if I was in Brian's shoes, Mr. Roberts, calling these people by the first name like I deserve to. That's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Anyway, if I was Mr. Roberts and, you know, GE was serving me up a pretty distressed asset or at a minimum an asset at a reasonable price. And, you know, video distribution was still uh, a thing. And we weren't in an over-the-top world. I could see myself buying uh, NBC Universal and getting some, you know, cost advantages on the distribution side. Malone talks about it a lot. And uh, I think it makes sense. I think it's a lot more logical at the time than maybe hindsight looks. So I'm hoping that maybe uh, Sky is similar, but it does make me nervous uh, and I have some work to do, but yeah, I, I think Andrew makes compelling points. I'll tell you, man, this is MVNO that I got. I mean, I was so livid with Comcast, uh, when I moved down, to, I just moved to Florida and, and the move was just horrible. I mean, it was atrocious how bad they were. Now I'm on this Verizon network. They're charging me like nothing. My, my cell phone bill is cut like 50 bucks a month from my sprint plan. I'll never leave Comcast now, unless you're listening, in which case, give me a refund for my aggravation. You'll lose
0: <laughs> That's funny. But I yeah, think that's a, yeah. like,
1: that's, that's a good deal, you know? And like the fact that the cable companies got that from the wireless companies, I sort of understood what they were trying to do, but I didn't like understand it until I got on this, this, uh, you know, until I got on this plan and, now I get right. it. I do think it's going to reduce churn
0: big time. Right. Well then, yeah, to plug Andrew, he just wrote about this today, actually. And yeah, he, he talks a lot about uh, wireless and how it fits into the cable companies. Um, you know, in terms of Sky, I think it's funny how you frame it in terms of needing to do more work. And I think I'm probably in the same spot, which is a different way of saying that I tend to look for management teams that I can trust and that I think will make intelligent long-term decisions. And then from there, I don't really spend much time nitpicking individual things that they do, which might sound crazy for a large deal, but I view it as akin to someone that I'm partnering with for the long term, and I'm letting them make the decisions. I'm not going to sit here and Monday morning quarterback them all the time, and obviously you can look back to pick the uh, most glaring example you could look at deals that Berkshire's done over the years like Dexter Shoe and other stuff that didn't work out I I just don't know Um, I don't think that's really a reasonable way to operate in certain ways not saying you should just close your eyes but I think if you kind of trust somebody to make to run the business you should let them run the business that said if you're just uncomfortable with an entity like that that is essentially a diversified conglomerate as Andrew put it then yeah, that's going to be a problem. So I don't know. I guess investors kind of have to choose what kind of companies they're comfortable owning. It's funny, even after all this, I'm still very comfortable owning owning Comcast. And I don't think that's just, it's not just a valuation comment. I mean, I think it's, I'm not just looking for a re-rating. It's something I'd kind of be happy to own for the next 10 or 20 years if things play out as I kind of think they might. So I don't know. I found it all very interesting. I don't really know if I have an answer, but... Well, I mean, dude, with Comcast, you basically have an infrastructure
1: asset that's trading at what a, according to Bloomberg right now, it's an 8% free cash flow yield to the equity for an infrastructure Mm -hmm. asset in this environment. Why? Because they got some parks that are temporary impaired for a year and some integration issues and NBCU is like, you know, perceived to be an ice cube. Okay, we'll see. You know, I, I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I'm in your camp. Like I don't know enough to a assess the strategic rationale of what they did and the plans that they have for that asset, because I'm not in the room when they're making these, these decisions. And what I do think is going to happen. And if it doesn't, you know, in the somewhat near future, like three or four years, is I'd like them to turn the buyback machine on. And, you know, if they do that, this can work out pretty well. Imagine selling Berkshire early in – not that Comcast is going to be Berkshire, but imagine selling it because you disagreed with Buffett on a deal. Right. Or like getting off the Malone train because you didn't like that he, you know – bought QVC or some BS like that. Like, i no, I, I think you're losing the big picture when you do stuff like that. Agreed. My, you know, I, I, something that I guess is tangential, but I think it's funny, is people ask me like, well, what has Charlie sharp done? And like, if you look at that CV, sometimes I want to ask people, why don't you send me your resume and let's talk about (laughs) what you've done. (laughs) Right. Like, did you learn at the, at the knee of Jamie Dimon and Sandy Weill and were you CFO at 30 and did you go back to work for Dimon and did, were you CEO of Visa and CEO of Bank of New York Mellon and were you chosen to turn around Wells Fargo? No, I think you're probably paid to be an analyst. So why don't you shut up? Like, I don't mean to be rude about it, but like, I just think some of these criticisms that people lob at these guys is asinine. And it's like so easy to do from a Monday morning. And Andrew did not do that with Comcast, So that is not at all what I'm talking about. Right. You know, I just think it's interesting how the narrative game flows and, you know, some of the criticisms that are lobbed at people. Uh, So.
0: No, to that that point on Sharf, I I would just note he's hired a, a bunch of people that he's worked with in the past and who in my mind a lot of them left what seemed to be pretty good jobs to come join him so you know people are uprooting their lives to take a risk to join wells which obviously has a a number of problems and to me that suggests he has a really good reputation amongst his former colleagues which is obviously encouraging when you're in a situation where there's going to be a lot of lifting to be done so i'm not sure how anybody could have a problem with what he's done so far but um anyways, yeah, and I think you know with with
1: roberts um i you know i it's tough right on on a forward multiple, it looks like it's trading at like a six percent free cash flow yield to the equity but um mm-hmm. i you know I just think it it's difficult for me to sit here and say you clearly made a mistake before seeing how he plays his cards, and if somebody pushed back and they said, well, then, how do you have a view on anything he does?' I would just say, like, NBCU was a pretty good deal. Like, was it the best deal? Maybe not, but it was a pretty good deal. Look at the assets that Comcast has built up. That's a pretty good deal. Uh, What I have seen them do with their Xfinity streaming service is they've offloaded a lot of the hardware to um, Roku now, right? So you can get Xfinity streaming the box is no longer from comcast a lot of the capex and the customer service complaints in that business are hardware related from the cable box perspective mm-hmm. uh, i see a company that's reducing truck rolls as much as they possibly can like i i don't see enough to have sky be the glaring thing that's going to make me get off the train but I'd be lying if I said I had an informed view on exactly what that asset, how it can fit together within Comcast.
0: Yeah. The only other thing I'd I'd say on Sky is that I think the second quarter call, the commentary from management was pretty insightful. And, you know, I think they laid out where they see long-term opportunity in that business that said Europe's a very different market than the United States. So in my mind, it's still very early and a global pandemic didn't help, but I think it's still to be seen whether or not it was a good deal. But
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I guess that the thing that is tough is like, I, I like uh, Greenwald a lot. Um, you know, I mean, he's, it's not like a unique thought that I have here, but, you know, he's always talking about like assessing scale within local Uh, you know, defining scale properly within a local region. And I Mm -hmm. guess that the thing that worries me about Sky is I don't have like a true deep understanding of, you know, what those assets are and why there are synergies between, you know, Comcast's existing footprint and Sky. I, I know the Comcast sales pitch on it, you know, but I don't know what, uh, I don't have an accurate, like, I don't have a deep enough understanding to know whether or not sort of that makes sense and even who to trust in saying that makes sense. Right. And I guess that fundamentally, that's one of the things that's nice about charter and, you know, even I know Malone, the knock on those entities is that they're overly structured. But one of the nice things about the tracking entities is you can get more of a pure play on the assets that you like. Whereas Comcast is sort of, you know, I mean, it is a a conglomerate, right? So, um, and then the other thing that I think about all the time when I see these uh, situations is like, wouldn't it be nice if right now when the market doubts Comcast, they could buy in their shares a little bit um but you know you and i talk all the time about whether or not we like buybacks in general right and uh, you see them in a lot of companies get shut off right now and they were buying like crazy in 2019 and
0: you know it's rational but it's also
1: frustrating
0: yeah and it's not even only a lot it's the vast majority and then you have companies like facebook that the capital allocation is just unclear exactly what they're trying to do i mean through this period Apple is probably the one standout example that I can think of. I mean, Berkshire buying $5 billion surely isn't nothing, but I know most people are unsatisfied with that. I mean, besides Apple, I can't think of a single company that was pretty aggressive with repurchases throughout this period. And granted, I, I think a lot of that speaks to the nature of how companies operate today, and I always come back to UNP. They, they're running at a leverage ratio currently that's well, well ahead of what they thought was prudent You know, five years ago. Um, But in their defense, it's a very good business and they've shown an ability to take out a lot of costs, even in a period when volumes were down roughly 20%. And I guess we live in a world where companies can pretty easily uh, cut the number of employees they have in a short period of time, either through firings or furloughs. So I, I guess if that's the way society is going to work, that that can work for a company, but it's just amazing to think that a railroad with volumes down 20% can kind of adjust its cost structure in a very short period of time. So,
1: yeah, that is amazing. Um, And something that like, I still, though I know it's going on, I find it hard to believe. I mean, I get it, you know, but it's just hard to believe. Uh, You know, the one thing that I will give uh, Zuckerberg credit for, well, I give him credit for a lot, but, um, <laughs> like through, through this period, he did make that, uh, investment in India and that makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. I just don't know what yeah. the heck that guy is doing, hoarding all this cash. Like you're not going to make a big acquisition. Maybe, you know, I mean, as demonstrated, you can put 5 billion to work, but how much cash is on that balance sheet?
0: Yeah. they they started the year with more than 50 billion and they currently have more than 50 after that deal. So, right,
1: And like, that's a big deal. And there there's no way they can, going back to AB InBev, one of the things that really screwed them, at least, you know, right now, is they did that big acquisition of uh, SAB Miller, and then all of a sudden, they're a forced seller of assets. And there weren't that many people that they wanted to put those assets in their hands, right? So then Molson mm-hmm. Coors gets some of them. And I just don't see how Zuckerberg would be able to acquire. I mean, there's just so much political scrutiny on that company that what is he going to be able to
0: buy that people are going to let him buy? Yeah, it has to be in no way related to their core business as far as I'm concerned. And even then, a big deal would probably have a lot of scrutiny attached to it. Right. Like, I mean, I I don't
1: see how he could execute something in the payment system. Like, I just, I I don't know. I I get why people would say that he can. But uh, I also don't. I mean, the big tech is more hated than big banks.
0: Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I agree. Capital allocation is very it's an interesting subject and it's, it's kind of funny to see how different companies and really even different industries can have completely different perspectives on how to, how to approach it. And in this case, we saw the big banks were, or not the big banks, big tech was most able to weather the storm. (laughs) And they're probably the ones who run most conservatively on their balance. sheets. just kind of funny. Uh,
1: Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I talked to Jerry Cap about Tyler, or I tweeted at him, right? And I was like, dude, they could take, like, one turn of leverage here. Um, right. You know, in a lot right. of these companies, I'm not saying lever up, but I don't think you need to run with $50 billion of cash on your balance sheet. But what do I know? I'm just a guy, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I agree with you, but I'm just another guy, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, like, you know, it's it's tough to go with Zuck, who has built, you know, that business and done – incredible acquisitions the only pushback i'd say is the acquisitions that he completed were done when no one sort of understood what he was doing which is like hugely visionary in its own right but uh now the cat's out of the bag so the go looking forward is going to be tougher uh than going backwards but they got a lot of under monetized assets in that entity and you know we've talked about it plenty
0: well, that's the kind of months. the point too. Who Zuckerberg is is why their capital, like, capital allocation is run the way it is. I mean, in his defense, I completely understand why very little or none of his time is focused on what they're doing with that cash because he has other things to worry about. Yeah, so it, I mean, he's not a he's not a finance guy really in that sense, and he's just running an entity that's generating you know whatever the number is over ten billion dollars a year in free cash flow. <laughs> he just needs to find something to do with it, but he's not too concerned with that problem and I can understand why he is. not So, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's
1: so rich, like, I mean, and he's making everyone so rich around him who really cares about a buyback, but right. over time that stuff adds up. It's not nothing.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, speaking of Jerry cap, it's funny you bring him up. Cause that's what the next question is about. He's become well-known in our little group on uh, Twitter. Maybe not so little, but he's become known for his, his never sell slogan, or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we kind of joke around about it, but I think that that kind of points to an underlying issue that investors often struggle with, which is how do you actually own great businesses for the long term? And to make this conversation, you know, direct to the point, let's assume we're talking about a company that you own shares in a non taxable account like an IRA. So my question to you is, is there any price where you should sell a great business with room to grow for years, or even decades to come? Or do you just hold it as long as the business is performing? And I'll add to that, if there's no price where you should be willing to sell a great business, is there any price where you shouldn't be willing to buy that same business? Uh,
1: I mean, it it would be illogical to say that there's no price too high, right? That doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I don't... Have a great answer to this. Uh, and I guess that it's probably why Buffett and Munger would just say, focus on buying the best businesses that you can at a reasonable price. I do think when you look at their actions, their definition of reasonable is quite a bit different than most people's definition of reasonable, right? They're not looking at a comp set and saying, well, this is where the comps are trading. Mm. Um, they they would not have the kind of accumulation of cash that they have if that's how they ran their business. So right. they've got to have some absolute hurdle rate. Um, and I, would you know, I'd wonder what uh, they, when they're calculating their hurdle rate, I'd, you know, love to sit down and talk to those guys about it because there must, I mean, when they were, when they were holding Coke, I wonder if they believed that that was a good decision. Uh, I suspect in closed doors, they knew it wasn't, but they sort of said, well, what are we going to do here? You know, we can't sell Coke. Uh, there would be no way to get out without crashing the stock. And then how are we going to get back in? And you know, who cares? Cause we're funding insurance liabilities with dividends anyway, and we'll get more dividends. It's just a way different conversation. In my opinion, um,
0: yeah, kind of to the point we were talking about earlier, where you know if the opportunity set you're looking at is not particularly attractive, which probably coincides with the period where you know something like Coke appears quite expensive, you're kind of stuck and don't really have any great options unless you're going to hold a bunch of cash, which you know kind of like you're you're alluding to that doesn't seem like a very good very good option either, so.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I think Comcast is a good example, right? Th- that was a big acquisition. You and I have just said we don't have a great sense of what's going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. A reasonable sense, fine, but like a great sense, I don't know. Um, and you're relying on their capital allocation from back in the day. I mean, not like, you know, back in the day, I think they've done a lot of things recently to beef up their network. And I, like I was talking about, what I see them doing to become more, uh, you know, cash flow or um, less capital intensive. I think those are good capital allocations from an internal standpoint. So that's positive. But you know, I, where does the the thesis creep come in? I don't know. Um, I guess that what I know is I have made. Some good sell decisions. I tried to go back and figure out if selling was a net benefit. And I guess that the biggest criticism that I would have on myself is I probably should have been pickier on which businesses I would partner with for the long term in the past. Uh, you know, like I sold National Beverage pretty. I I forget what the write-up was, but it was north of 90 a share. And that was like clearly a very good sell. And Mm -hmm. I did it when it made my stomach churn to hold. And I, on the other hand, you know, had bought Apple in December of 2018. And I guess I underestimated the the extent to which they're just going to become like a tax collector on everything. Um, mm-hmm. but it got to evaluation that I just couldn't stomach, you know, uh, within a year and I sold and now I look like a complete dope. Cause I sold the business for like $1.1 $1. 1 trillion and how stupid was that? <laughs> right. Um, but you know, I don't know, these numbers are getting kind of nuts. On the other hand, you can't anchor to what history used to be, right? Because global scale is seriously, seriously powerful. So I don't have a good answer for you. I I think what I would say, like, and what I try to do is to figure out how much of the expense base is growth related, like realistically, how much is sort of, you know, how much growth can you really bank on and then can you talk yourself into saying this is reasonable here? And, you know, something like Microsoft, I mean, it's rich. I think it's relatively reasonable. Uh, it's not a huge position for me, though. So if it you know gets taken down a little bit, I- I'd be more inclined to add. Um, but yeah, fully selling out. I don't know. That said, you know, I sold out of Amazon maybe a month ago or so. So maybe it was two months now. So there's obviously some price I'm not comfortable holding these things at. Uh, But like with Amazon, I get a lot of the assets. I just can't get there on the valuation. And, you know, maybe that'll look stupid in the future. But uh, if that's my worst decision that I've ever made in life, I'll I'll be okay.
0: Yeah, I think the word, what you said about uh, national beverages, it's kind of similar to how I, I look at it, I think, which is, you know, if it kind of makes your stomach hurt or if you're you know I, I I wrote that article about Microsoft, and basically, my logic was if I can look out five or ten years and assume that things stay pretty good and then I can put what still seems like a pretty you know generous price or fair price, however you want to frame it, if I do that, and in that case, as you and I have talked about, you know're talking about cash flows going uh, cash from operations going from fifty to one hundred and fifty billion a year, which is not a small number um so if i go through that exercise and then i'm still looking at you know call it mid single digit returns if i'm not willing to start trimming there i'm not sure i mean i guess you could say you wait until returns are zero under that same framework but to me that just sounds too aggressive i mean outside of any tax consequences and just you know history with the business and all the biases that come with having own something for a long time and having it been a big winner so trying to do what i can to avoid those but yeah i don't know i i certainly think there's some price but on the other hand selling something with a very uh long right tail decades into the future will be a very painful experience if you actually do it so (laughs) yeah i I don't have the answer like most things
1: well i like to pay attention to story arc too um If it feels really rich, and I mean, like, by feel, I mean, like, you do the math, and you're like, boy, this doesn't feel right to me. And the story is about as positive as it can get, which, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, people have been saying this about Fang for a long, long time, and they've been way wrong. So, uh, there are four exceptions to this sort of comment, and they're massive exceptions. But, uh, right. You know, and I guess it's more than that. It's Fangma or Fat Mang. I don't know what it is now. But Yeah, um, a bunch of
0: smaller names that don't get in there.
1: Yeah, but like look, like something like um I mean I shouldn't even comment on Tesla because I don't know anything about it because I've been wrong forever. But like I just the what you have to embed in that market cap and your terminal cap rate. Um I I just think there's so much execution risk in that, that why would you pay that when like, basically the bet is it's going to be some infrastructure asset and tax, like all of travel and energy and everything else. I mean, I'd just rather own a cable company right now to be perfectly candid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You and me both. Like, I mean, that's here and now and, and sort of the, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch the, The risk of 5G where somebody comes over the top is like a real risk, but I just haven't seen anything that makes me think it's A, practical, especially to households, um, and B, economical to deploy. And until I see that and they start taking share, I just
0: can't get there on that idea of it being a threat. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree. I think a lot of this left-tail, right-tail stuff if, if you're viewing it in, in terms of actual business results, not that you'll miss that on a great run in the stock. Um, the conversation gets a lot different. Um, I'll be very surprised if we look back in 10 years and go, you know, 250 billion or whatever Tesla's at today was just an absurdly cheap price, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Who knows? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. And I, you know, the other thing that I would say is uh as i look at my portfolio today versus what it was coming into the year um i have a lot higher quality businesses and i did it at the right time i should have gotten more aggressive you know following the fed zooka and all the policy and whatever when jim cramer was on tv with his hair on fire saying i probably should have been buying but that just made me like nervous right but hindsight's always twenty twenty, you know, and I'm out here and I'm risking like my own money and I wasn't gonna bet my kids ability to eat on some junky companies ripping. Like I just fundamentally that didn't matter at the time and you know, the results have been pretty acceptable thus far. So we'll see.
0: But yeah, what, you, but you the and difference I you, that might go unnamed, but just some some of the runs those names have had is I mean, it's just crazy, but yeah, it's crazy. The, it's nuts. If the equity gets priced like you're going to go bankrupt or something close to it, then I guess you can have crazy runs or people can just get very optimistic again. But yeah, some of those things, uh, they don't deserve to go up as much as they did, but missing them is still not fun.
1: No, and a lot of them have more debt now. And like, this is the type of thing that you see in five years, um, you know, is the index going to win? And I understand the notion of like the index is becoming much higher quality and I get that, but the incentives in the financial industry right now to me are just very perplexing. When I think about index construction, who's buying these assets, why they're buying these assets. Um, I just, I am very nervous right now, uh, to be, exposed to some of what i think is going on so i'm i'm ducking it and if i look back at my life and i've underperformed because of it so be it but there's some fairly smart people ducking it too so i'm not alone yeah i think that's fair
0: Um, what i would
1: say on the on the never sell thing I, i think where jerry has a real good point is he says it's not about a single trial it's about a portfolio of companies and i think that makes some sense uh I I would also say, I mean, like I own Transdime now. I bought it when I was getting, you know, uh, pinged about whether or not they had covenant issues and people were asking me to help them with the credit agreement. And it was pretty evident that they weren't going bankrupt if you did just like a little bit of work Uh, and they had the liquidity to make it. So I knew it was too cheap then. Then it like ripped to 500 a share uh, and I think it was somewhere like 15, 16 times trailing. EBITDA. I might be wrong on that. That might be a little high, but I was like, this is too far, too fast. And I trimmed a little, you know, and then I bought a little bit more around four thirty. Like that made sense to me. Um, I just, it was too, too high if that makes any sense, but I wasn't going to sell it. And I liked the business and I want to be involved with them long-term and I, know they're good at capital allocation. So, you know, it got to like 13% of my portfolio and I didn't really love having it that big. So I trimmed it and I, in retrospect, that's a pretty good decision.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's even just hearing you say that, you know, one of the mistakes I made early on is when I own a stock, if it got any cheaper, I would basically double down almost immediately without any thought because in my mind, if I didn't, that meant I didn't have conviction on the name anymore. And it's just kind of funny the way you frame that. You know, you can you can trim something and still think the stock's attractive just for portfolio reasons. And someone yeah. might say, well, how well how is that logical that you did that? And I think the answer can be that you're just viewing it as part of portfolio and you just want a slightly smaller position. <laughs> I think it's as easy as that. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's right. I mean, I'm I'm currently running, I think it's 21 names. No, it's down to 18. And other than the top, so my top four of which one is Berkshire. So you might as well consider that index-like. I mean, the top four are almost 40%. It it looks like 37%. The rest is pretty close to an equal-weighted portfolio. I mean, it's not, uh, but it's not too far away. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like Microsoft is down to 2.5% because I want to be associated with Microsoft and I really want to see what Xbox can become and I really want to see... How Azure develops, and you know, you got a long, long time with a really young, talented CEO. But I don't want it to be like ten percent up here either.
0: Right, I hear you. So one of the one of the problems that happens with this is, you know, like you said, Jerry Jerry Cap says it's not about a single trial; it's about a portfolio of these names. One of the problems, though, in my mind, is if you start out with decent sized positions and you have a huge a huge winner it can obviously become a huge part of your portfolio. So as an example, at the end of the second quarter, Berkshire's position in Apple was 44% of their equity portfolio. Obviously, that's not the only thing inside the company, but it's a huge part of their equity portfolio. Today at 460 a share, that position's worth about $110 billion. Just to give you some context on what that means, I'm sure everybody remembers Berkshire owned somewhere around 10% of IBM uh, a few years ago. Well, today their Apple position is worth more than all of IBM, the entire company. Um, so, anyways, obviously Berkshire's sitting on huge unrealized gains, and they have nothing better to do with the proceeds that they did decide to sell because they already have, you know, 140 billion in cash and equivalents on the balance sheet. So even if you can make a strong case that stock is undervalued at four sixty, do you think Buffett would trim or sell Apple? at any price or is this just going to be a never sell for Berkshire?
1: I don't know, man. Cause there's no way Buffett's the smart money in Apple. Zero. Like he definitely was the smart person at the buying table.
0: Here's but what I'll say for him real quick, not to cut you off, but I yeah. he specifically said this is the most valuable real estate in the world. And it gets to the tax collector comment that you said, Yeah. if you think yeah. you're just taking pennies off of all the activity on mobile devices, that sure is a lucrative market, so I'll give him that.
1: No, you're right. You're right, and maybe I'm. I mean, I that how you said that really made me rethink that. Uh, so maybe he is the smart money. I I guess. I guess uh, once again, I'm the idiot versus him. Not <laughs> it won't be the
0: last time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so anything, I just, do you think, is I mean, is there a price where he would sell this thing or would he, he'll just let it run like he did with Coke and just live with the consequences? I don't know. I don't either. My sense is, I don't know. I'm basically guessing, but my sense is that he would probably let it run unless he had a better use for the cash. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm not positive. It's hard well, to say, but.
1: What benefit would he get from selling it? I don't, I mean, don't know. So, what, I mean, so, like Berkshire needs $250 billion sitting on the balance sheet?
0: Right. I mean, they certainly don't. I mean, this is the same thing in a personal portfolio. If you have 5% five or, five or 10% in cash and you own a company that's high quality, but you think it's overvalued, whatever that term means to you, to me, it means inadequate rates of return. It's a hard choice to say what you should do because inadequate might still be a positive number, and cash returns is not a very large positive number. So, it's a hard choice. Yeah.
1: I look, I also think it's important to uh contextualize this. Like if you're running a hedge fund and your mandate is to constantly day after day make the most return that you possibly can. That's a lot different than like I mean Berkshire is going to benefit from the dividend stream that Apple gives it. Uh, the probability that Apple like disappears is very, very low right now. Um, you know, if they have to give back a little bit of capital gains on it, like they're pretty freaking rich and it's still serving the same, uh, function as long as some massive technology doesn't come out and disrupt it if it goes down, then the share buybacks actually do something at this valuation. They just don't do that much uh, in my opinion, relative to what they used to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's how he thinks about it. Like if it's rich, whatever, I got to gain. And if it comes down, they buy more shares in, Um, you know, obviously that's a dangerous game because if the cash flows are eroding, then then that's changing. But um, it's sort of hard to see apple getting displaced in the near future
0: yeah i definitely agree with that um yeah i I, I always think back to ocre and the you know the idea of just owning these high quality businesses and living with the volatility and i you know it's it's easier said than done especially if you're looking at stock prices all the time as most of us are who kind of do this for a living um but there's also a huge detriment to that and not being being willing to accept the fact, Hey, if this goes down 30%, that's life. I don't really care. Maybe I'll buy more and <laughs> yeah. just being okay with it. So,
1: no, I think that's right. And I mean, I, you know, I think this is the best argument for the index is that you're naturally holding the right tail events and the index can tax advantage, uh, you know, repurpose uh, the holdings, right? Like you, It's always morphing and you're never paying tax on the morphing because of the structure. And, you know, it's a long tailwind. Um, I guess what I think about the portfolio that I run, and if I had clients, I would just make sure that they were really aligned with my interests and my clients, as far as I'm concerned, is my family. And like, I don't look at my portfolio right now, given what I see going on in the world, what i own and feel like i'm doing my family a disservice by running an active uh strategy and thankfully the returns are close enough to the index that i'm not just full of shit. Um, but you know if that changes eventually i'm gonna have to be you know have a serious conversation with myself and one of the things that you and i have talked about is like my portfolio has never been in a position where I've liked it as much as I like it now. Um, But I also haven't had to make very hard sell decisions in the past. Um, And like now I have assets in the, in the portfolio that I really actually like. Uh, I don't have much junky stuff and I acquired most of it at pretty good prices. So going forward I think I'm going to be inclined to hold through those periods a lot more than I would have otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, it always comes back to the alternative, which we spoke about earlier, kind of getting pushed into, um, you know, stuff that you might not want to be doing like ABI or Kraft Heinz, not to say they are bad investments, but I don't think they meet some of the criteria that truly you and I are probably looking for. And I think one of the posts that you wrote about it, you wrote about ABI in, in, in March, I think it was this year. Was, the post is called No Answers. And by the way, for anybody listening, your blog has a bunch of great writing that people should go read. Uh, but in that, in that post, you said, to be sure, there's a very reasonable possibility we sold too cheap. However, Bill Miller's firm wrote a letter last year that made a lasting impression on me. In the letter, they commented that their biggest mistake came, mistakes came from holding stocks whose fundamentals deteriorated below their expectations at underwriting in those situations they held because they thought intrinsic value declined less than price, the results were poor. And I you know, I think that definitely aligns with some of the losses we've had and, and you can think about what the inverse of, of that is and how you should react to that. So yeah, that's
1: right. Um and and the other thing is like ABI for my investment period and i do hope they turn it around because uh, you know whatever i i like those guys i don't care if everybody else hates them um <laughs> like i uh it, it did there was always something coming up you know and um dan mcmurtry said something to me um actually on my drive down uh to florida he's like i'm done with victim management teams and i thought that that was so smart You know, like there's certain teams that stuff always seems to happen to them. And like, I'm no more, you know, there's, I I don't have time for that in my life.
0: Yeah. I've been in those situations and I could not agree more (laughs) when you see it start happening. It's the, I think I read about Wells once under the prior management. It's a slow drip of just every quarter is there's something new. And I I felt the same way when I owned IBM as well and uh, and other companies in the past. And when you start seeing it, I feel like you just got to cut the cord almost regardless of what the price to value looks like.
1: Well, dude, and Wells is so fascinating to me. I mean, one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with it is so many people missed it you know, and it was such a darling and it had all the things that compounders would love, right? You got a decentralized culture that promotes from within and does things (laughs) differently and like, I mean, all the shit that if it works out, it's like you know, an outsider CEO I mean, you could, you can pitch that company. Right. Um, And it turned out that a lot of that was just nonsense. Now, the, the, the one thing that is objectively true about that company is everyone that that takes shots at it they don't take shots at the credit culture and to Mm -hmm. me that's why it's an asset base that's worth uh betting on you know if it was a house of cards built on crappy loans you know no way is it worth betting on a turnaround but you know i i see something different there and they have cleaned house and I suspect these $10 billion of cost cuts are gonna have a lot of middle management uh, jobs hit in the street. So
0: we'll yeah, if, be, if it can be, be the, done. A lot of the people commenting on plenty of names, not just Wells. Um, and I, I, This even goes for myself for names that I own, and Wells is one. You, know, you, you, gave, you sent me that report from uh, Congress, I believe it was. And yeah. it just it just opened my eyes to a lot that I had not seen. And my point is that on a lot of names people are commenting on, if they're not really deep on the story, they're really commenting from a position of not having a clue what's going on. So, I mean, which is fine to do if you're just having fun, but I just don't know how useful the the negative feedback is on a lot of names where people are commenting from information that's either outdated or just wrong in a lot of cases. Yeah, dude, or the opposite, right? Like a lot of these young
1: companies that are growing, there there are a couple of things that are true, right? One thing that is true is we're living in a time where it's very possible that we're watching the next sort of like iteration of infrastructure being built in front of our eyes, like Roku with TV sets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is very possible that that is essentially screen infrastructure is a way you could think about it if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's also a lot of incentive out there to pitch these ideas that have super wide distributions, but big fat, right tails. And if you're early on the pitch and then the growth starts to work, like, you know, um, it, it you're the genius that pitched it early, but it doesn't really address skew. And I, would love to have people have to pitch things with, you know, this is my net worth. This is how much is in it. I have a limited liability structure. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to hit this hurdle rate. If I hit this, then I'm going to move here. If I don't hit this, this is the direction my life will go. Like, you know, it's just, it's all the context, right?
0: But, uh,
1: you know, you got a bunch of really smart people pitching really smart sounding things really early and early in the adoption cycle. Of course, the growth is fast. Like it must be. Otherwise it's just like a, you know, it's, it's never going to grow. Right. So, um, I, I don't know how to thread that needle and I don't know what the answer is, but you know, we talk Peloton. I mean, I love Peloton. I I'm obsessed with my Peloton. It's trading at like 26 times gross profit, 27. It looks like, mm-hmm. I, you know, that can work, but, um, it, it does somebody's professional life a lot better to give that pitch uh early and if it if they knock it out of the park you know that you basically set up years of capital raising uh, that's an interesting structure so I think you right. got to keep that stuff in
0: mind no definitely and that's that's very true for people who are looking at other people pitching ideas it's always important to 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 think fully about what's going on and what everybody's incentives are.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, like some of these value managers that are capitulating. Uh, I, I don't think they're wrong by the way, in DeFang, but I'm sorry. Some of those people are doing it just to keep clients. They don't actually believe this shit. So, right. you know, when, when stuff hits the fan who's going to hold and who's going to know how to sell. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm the dumb money in Microsoft at these prices Uh, But I do understand the business and I am incredibly impressed with what they've done. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm amped to see what Xbox becomes. Uh, It would be very cool if Xbox and PlayStation are the Roku and Google of, uh, you know, or the Apple of, of gaming and they can just tax a bunch of stuff. I think that that could be a very, very profitable growth curve. Uh, and I, I know it's already happening, but it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future. Yeah,
0: yeah, it definitely will be. I um, wouldn't want
1: to be long game stop.
0: No, I think I'm going to pass on that one for now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish Mike Burry all the luck in the world, but I don't I don't see it personally. Yeah, well,
1: that's another one that like you've got to have a management team. Like, let's say it's all correct. You got to have a management team that's going to give you the cash. And to be fair to the longs,
0: almost everybody commenting on it, as we were just saying, I don't know the story there. I don't know. I don't know new new management. I'm not sure what their plan is. So maybe it's one where the longs are the the only people who (laughs) are really following. So we'll see.
1: No, that's exactly right. And if you've done the work and if you're listening to me and you think I'm an idiot, then like, I really do hope you win. Because I am an idiot right here. But I've looked and I've looked and I've looked, and every time I've said no, and I've kind of hit the point where I'm like, I'm not
0: looking anymore. Right. Yeah. All right. I had two more questions for you, but I th- I think that's enough for today. I'm going to get you back on here at some point, and we'll do another pod.
1: All right. Uh, did you expound? You did expound on the never sell. I wanted to hit you with some questions, but
0: I don't know. Go ahead if you want. If you want, if you want, if you want to do a couple now, feel free, or or else we'll save them. Up to you.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know that I can pull one out right now, but man, I I tell you what, I have, okay, so here's something for you. When did you start writing? How has writing, uh, how have you felt about being like publicly out there as far as like the ideas that you have? And do you think that on balance, it's been a net benefit for your career? And you as an investor.
0: So I started writing in, I believe it was 2011. Uh, I wrote on Seeking Alpha for a little while. And then I've been, on, I've been writing on Guru Focus for better part of the last 10 years. Um, you know, I've, I found it very helpful. One, just distilling my thoughts into something that, that actually sounded halfway intelligent. And that was well thought out. And a lot of times, what I was trying to write was neither of those things. Um, and then over time, you know, I've got decent feedback on the articles here and there, but I think it's even helped going back and reading my own writing and realizing that some of my thinking was not particularly w- uh, well thought out. Um, so I think I've learned from that. And then, you know, definitely since joining Twitter and meeting a bunch of people like yourself that's definitely been very helpful. And it's also, you know, opened my audience in terms of what people are reading from me or hearing from me. And and the feedback I get from that, especially from people who hear me talking about names that I don't know about as much as they do because they either work for a company or they work in an industry. And that kind of feedback for me is always my favorite because it's, it's just gold and it's information that I would really struggle to receive otherwise. So I think I, it's just been very helpful for me with with how I think about things and how I present them to others and, you know, kind of anticipate pushback and where holes are in my logic. So I've loved it. Um, how how has it been for you writing? Because I know you've been you've been doing it for, you know, it seems like about two years now and your writing has definitely gotten a lot better. And I, I your perspective on stuff is very unique, which is why I always love talking to you.
1: It's good, man. Uh, And thank you. First of all, I appreciate it. I hope it's half right half the time. Well, actually, I hope it's half right probably 60% of the time. That would be nice. Um, (laughs) But uh, I I realized for the math nerds that my probability and intersection there was a little low. So uh, anyway, (laughs) Uh, you know, I I have really liked it that I don't write on the blog nearly enough. Uh, And part of it's because I don't have that much intelligent to say, Um, like really, truly insightful. And I guess that I use Twitter um, as more of like a frequent thought dump type place. And that sometimes leads to unique insight. And, um, you know, to, to your point, I mean, anyone that is following either of us, if you're like not in the investment industry and you see us talk about a name that's in your industry, all I mean, I will just pick up the phone and listen to you talk for hours and hours, as much as you want to talk about your job, I will listen. Same. Um, you know, like the, that's where the real, to your point, like the real gold has been, there was, I, I said something about tap, uh, you know, uh, the ticker TAP and, I got like a somebody commented and they were like hey man there's like a real aluminum shortage going on and like you know the the shift from like they can't sell as much through kegs so they're trying to drive volume through um cans but like they can't get all the cans that they need like that's super mm-hmm. insightful I don't know that stuff just sitting here so right. um You know, and then obviously I got to make sure that that's correct. But, you know, the nice thing about Twitter, especially in the direct message uh, realm, there's just not that much incentive for somebody to come out and like mislead you or something like that. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that get off on doing it, um, but you can suss that out pretty quick. And I've had some some really good conversations. Uh, I owe a lot to Toby to Toby Carlisle for for giving me a shot on the pod. Um, and that's been awesome. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I do think that when I write, um, I get to a much better place and we'll see how, I, I mean, obviously my biggest fear right now as well is cause it's so, so stupid to be long that right now. And I am.
0: <laughs> yeah. So am I. And, uh, you know, we talk about it plenty and I think we both understand the bet we've made and, and if we lose then i i think we both appreciate what i think we appreciate the bet for what it is so man that's all is- you can really ask for this game well, there's no such thing people act like there's that was an easy one i knew that was going to be a huge winner those are very 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 rare and things that will be like i mean i i bought microsoft early on and i've owned it at least uh, i've owned it in size for the better part of 10 years And the story that it is today is not the story that it was five years ago. And it's definitely not the story that it was 10 years ago. So people, I think sometimes forget how, how perceptions evolve over not long, not very long periods of time.
1: Yeah, dude, I'm over here feeling sick about what I said about Buffett being the, the um, dumb or not the smart money in Apple at these prices. Like I really have like, (laughs) I'm feeling sick. So, uh, I just, I have so much respect for that guy. So to say that, to be uh, sort of offhanded with it uh, is
0: so silly. But um, yeah, I well, makes you. You feel better. I have no way to confirm or deny this, but I do not think he's been listening to the Science of Hitting pod based on the numbers I've been getting. So I think you're okay.
1: Maybe you just have a very high quality uh, <laughs> guest list like our Value After Hours does. Cause there the you ten, go. the 10 that listen to that are strong.
0: Hopefully it's um, the
1: same <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all the same crossover. The thing on Wells, man, is, I, you know, I mean, you and I have talked about it, but for people listening, like, I just think it's a skew bet. And I I just, I mean, I guess that you could lose 50% on that somehow. But I, I mean, I go through the loan book, you know, we've, we've done this with each other. And it's just like, I, I think that the data supports the scuttlebutt that I've heard from some people within the organization that like, come 2017 their credit standards got like real tight um, and they really like got, if you cannot grow your assets, you better make sure the assets on your balance sheet are the best you can make uh, or get and the best relationships that you can get and the most encompassed relationships that have cash management and cards and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. I just don't know how many people are thinking deeply about it? Sort of like we said about GameStop, right? It's just like thrown out. But at $100 billion, it's not completely bombed out. But um, I don't know. It's a hard game, man. And I think that some of these, you know, I see some ideas that I see that I'm like, yes, this will clearly be bigger in a little while. I'm not sure that they give you above market returns. I mean, I guess what a stronger way to say that is I don't think they do. Otherwise, I would own them. Right, but
0: uh, right. We'll see. Well, if if Sharf is in the updated edition of The Outsiders, we're both going to make some decent money. So that's good. We'll Boom. see what happens. Boom! <laughs> with
1: that beautiful white hair of his.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but all right, man, not, Take care of yourself. But appreciate it coming on. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be back soon, and Bill will definitely be on in the future. All right.
1: Take care.